Who are you? With the waiting ones. Waiting for what? Waiting for you. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We's the watching ones. We've been watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 53, which begins with Max finding himself between a rock and a hard place. And it ends with an emerging case of mistaken identity. When we left Max on Monday, he was surrounded by shouting children. As we join him today on Wednesday, he is still surrounded by shouting children and it is starting to bother him. Yeah, he's completely lost control. He never really had control, but it's getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. He is starting to panic. And in that panic, he is saying more things, which is just causing the kids to chant more. Yeah. Making the whole thing worse. We mentioned on Monday, he shouts, who are you? They chant, who are you? He yells quiet. They yell quiet back at him. And then he just yells, shut up. They shout, shut up right back at him. And no matter what, they just keep chanting back at him. The words that he uses in the storybook are a bit different and they're a bit more subdued. After he's offered more food in the storybook, he asks rather conversationally, who are you? The tribe repeats the words, just who are you, who are you? It doesn't say if they're shouting. Max tries again, who brought me? And they repeat that back. He asks about their parents. Where are they? He gets nowhere. And so he shouts, answer me. And then they start shouting back at him, answer me. So the interrogation is a bit more question-based in the storybook. Yeah, in the movie, like I said before, he's panicking and losing control. In the novel, he has a line of questions that go nowhere, but he at least gets to ask real things before he loses his temper a little bit. The line is, answer me, Max ordered angrily. Mm. So there is a bit of temper losing on Max's part. So he stumbles around with this situation for about five seconds. And the second shot of this minute is another group of the waiting ones that just appear out of nowhere. They're standing up on a ledge. And then one jumps onto a zipline and starts moving. Before we get into the group on the ledge and the guy ziplining, I want to point a little thing out. As the camera moves up to the ledge... We see Screwloose is up there. He kind of turns his head, notices the group coming up behind him. He notices how many people are all of a sudden around him. And he very smoothly and very quietly removes himself from the group. Yeah. There are too many people around. His ledge is now occupied by somebody else. He does not want to be there and he removes himself. (laughs) (laughs) which I found delightful watching him do that. And it was very smooth and really well executed. Yeah, they're really establishing Screwloose as the loner of the group. You can kind of already tell that because of the way he paints himself up and the fact that he was removed from the group in that initial can you hear me walker scene. Mm -hmm. But here you can tell that he's definitely not comfortable with other people like you said. Yeah, this really drives it home. Yeah. So this group that have just shown up, these are the hunters of the tribe, and their introduction is rather subdued here in the movie. They've shown up, they're standing around, you can actually see that they're coming back from a hunt. There are two children in the back, and they've got a stick over their shoulder with some sort of, 
I'm going to say it's a boar because in the storybook it's a boar, but it's just strung up between them. And Slake, the big one, <laughs> the big one, <laughs> sees this situation and decides, oh, I need to get down there right quick. The entrance of the hunters in the storybook is a bit more dramatic, and I'm sure it's going to be even more dramatic in the book. It is. I know what the storybook says, and there is one more element in the novelization that makes it even more dramatic. So in the storybook, Max has shouted answer me the children in the tribe are shouting answer me back at him and then suddenly a boar's head lands at max's feet someone has decapitated a boar and is just throwing heads around <laughs> so everybody in the crowd stops looks up and above them on the ledge are eight teenage boys dressed in skins and fur and they're all clutching spears and carrying a wild boar slung on a pole, just like we're able to see in this shot here. And the book identifies them as hunters. So in the novelization, the boar's head gets thrown down and it is followed up by Slake taking, is it an arrow or a dart of some kind and flinging it at the boar's head, landing it straight in the boar's eye. Okay. It is a display of intimidation. Gotcha. And I think it's rather effective. Message received. Yeah. Yes. The biggest lad here in the hunter group is identified as the lead hunter, Slake Mathurst. I am so delighted by that name. I did not realize that Slake had a last name because... Every time I've watched this movie, he's always just been Slake. Mm -hmm. One name, like Madonna or Cher, I never thought to myself, oh, he needs a last name, just like Savannah. Savannah doesn't necessarily need a last name. Finn doesn't need a last name, but they're thrown in there in the end credits. They're listed there as Savannah, Nix, Finn, McCoo. Slake's, however, in the end credits is omitted because his last name is Mathurst, M apostrophe Thirst. And his first name is Slake, which means to quench. quench. Exactly. I think it's a real shame that his last name is not listed in the credits, especially since other people get last names, like Anna Goanna gets two names, Finn McCoo, Savannah Nix, which Savannah seems to be the only person with like a normal name. Yeah. But we have decided she is quite old. I mean... <laughs> she is quite a bit older than everybody else. I think we supposed that she was old enough to remember her real name. So it's quite possible Savannah Nix really is the name she was born with that her parents gave her. So it's a shame that he lost his second name. Yeah. I looked into the actor who played Slick, Tom Jennings. That was not an easy thing because his IMDb page is rather incomplete. It's missing a lot of information that I've been able to find on other people's IMDb pages. So I don't have a birthday year for him. I don't know how old this actor was when he took this role. All I can really tell is that he was a fairly active television and film actor for seven, eight years between 1985 and 1992. He acted in two feature films with the other one being Stones of Death. He had a 30-episode run on Sons and Daughters in 1987 and a 7-episode run on Neighbors in 1990. And he was also listed as the host of Australia's version of the game show Double Dare from 1990 to 1991. I'm guessing I had so much trouble finding information about him because his name is Tom Jennings, which is a fairly generic-sounding name. It took me a moment, but when I heard that his name was Tom Jennings, I'm like, isn't that the name of a new 
news anchor for one of the big channels. And I realized it's Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw. That's where I was getting it from. IMDb is slowly becoming less and less reliable. I've been going to Google and whatnot for more of my other searches. And even then, it doesn't always help. But according to IMDb, Tom's top four are Thunderdome, first and foremost. A role on 1988's Hey Dad, where he played Tom Bennett. He was also in 1986's My Brother Tom, where he played Tom Quayle. <laughs> and then his run on Neighbors, he played Rory Marsden. Oh, I was so hoping his name would be Tom. Yeah, it's kind of weird when you see an actor and they're playing a character with the same first name. Yeah. It'd be like Mel Gibson playing Mel Rokitansky. It's just weird. It's it, like yeah. they're an actor. You would expect them to be cast in a role that they don't share a first name with. I mean, granted, you're not going to have a movie and be casting for that movie and say, okay, we're not allowed to cast anyone with the same name as this character. It's just kind of weird to see. It is. We go to great lengths to separate the actor from the part. Yeah. Especially with the Mad Max series. Right. We try very hard not to, to think too much about Mel Gibson and his right. phone messages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we appreciate the work that he did here and we appreciate him as an actor. And we can do that because we know that Max is not Mel. So when they're playing a part of the same name, it just kind of makes that a little tiny bit more difficult. It's one of those things that I just find strange. Really do. I always wonder if they find that strange on set. Yeah. It must be really easy for their co-stars, though, not having to remember two different names. I always love the blooper reels where the actor is supposed to be calling out the name of the other character and they accidentally call out their real name. When I was in high school, I was part of a production of Our Town, which is quintessential American stage play. It is as American as apple pie because the way it was written, it was meant to be a time capsule for that day and that age. But I was playing the father character who worked for the newspaper, I think it was. There are two father characters, one that works for the newspaper and one that's a doctor. I was not the doctor. And in, I want to say, act one, my character was coming home from working at the office or something like that. And I was supposed to walk onto the scene, call up to one of my co-stars who is playing my daughter in the scene and shout up and ask if that character is the person that is the newsman's wife you know comes home late at night sees a light up in the window hey wife is that you oh okay okay i'm not explaining it very well because <laughs> i'm trying to remember it as i explain it and my memory is not what it used to be if it was ever really that good to begin with but i digress so it's in a rehearsal i walk onto the stage i look up at this actress and instead of saying the character name of the newsman's wife I slip up and I say the character name of the doctor's wife. Wow. <laughs> and I'm so glad it happened during a rehearsal because everyone, including the director, could not handle that. <laughs> they cracked up. Because I realized almost instantly what I had done. The actress up on the ladder realized what I had done. And then the jokes about infidelity in our town started flying around and whatnot. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Definitely one of those situations where just got names mixed up because there were so mm -hmm. many new ones to learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Sure. So Slake and the other hunters have returned from a hunt, and they have a boar hanging from a stick between a few of them. Yes, and I looked up boar facts. Okay. So a boar is also a wild pig. They're one and the same. So a lot of the facts that I have are about wild pigs, but they're the same thing. So it's all good. In 2007, the London paper, The Telegraph, published an article that claimed that the population of wild pigs in Australia then outnumbered humans in Australia. Really? Yes. In 2007, the population of wild pigs was 23 million, and the population of humans was 21 million. So it wasn't even close. Two million more pigs than humans in Australia. Did they distinguish between wild and domesticated? Well, they said wild pigs. Okay, so So they are wild. Now, see, I would have expected them to say, oh, there's more pigs of all kinds, domesticated and wild, because you look at a place like New Zealand, I'm pretty sure sheep outnumber people in New Zealand at least three to one. The difference between that, though, is that the sheep thing is on purpose. Right. This is an accident, and I'll bet you can guess why it's an accident. Oh, did the white people screw it up? Yeah, they really did. Before I get into the white people screwing it up. Colonizers. uh, In 2018, they estimated that there were 24 million wild pigs, and the human population is now at 24.13 million. Okay, so So, they've caught up. Yeah, so right now it's really a race for dominance between the pigs and the humans, which is frightening because we have discussed the whole pig thing and how vicious and ferocious they are, and you just add the wild factor, and it's just... Pigs are scary of all kinds. Pigs are very frightening. Oh, man. Imagine how much more frightening a pig would be if it had thumbs. Well, then they would be the dominant species on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) So as you said before, wild pigs are not native to the continent. Predictably, the British brought them with them from Europe as livestock in 1788. The pigs quickly escaped and established a wild population. They're now considered one of the most widespread and damaging pest animals. Hmm. Feral pigs spread weeds, degrade soil and water, prey on native species, damage crops and livestock, and carry diseases. They are a menace to society akin to rabbits and camels and emu and seems to be a lot of species in australia were brought by the white man and now are decimating the landscape okay now i have not researched emus i are they not native to australia i haven't either guessing off the top of my head i'm thinking they probably are native to australia but they are a menace right the army did have to go to war with emus yes if you don't say it right we're gonna get yelled at emu 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 Emu. 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 Okay. I don't say that word on a daily basis, so I'm very much out of practice when it comes to the large flightless bird native to Australia. (laughs) That's all my boar facts. Speaking of birds and funny phrases and whatnot, in the storybook, after they introduce Slake, there's a quick little thing where Savannah shouts up to Slake and yells, We's found Slake. And Slake, as it says in the storybook, grabbed a flying fox. He swooped down with it towards the tribe and moved slowly towards Max. Now, the only thing that I am aware of in this world that is called a flying fox is more or less one of those gigantic root bat things with a six-foot wingspan. Like, when I hear flying fox, that's what I think of. Mm-hmm. Well, turns out, all this time that we've been saying zipline, we could have been saying flying fox because people in Australia and New Zealand call them that. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that when we talked about ziplines back when Auntie was using one, 
I think we mentioned that. Did we? I certainly didn't remember it. I might not have said it out loud. It might have just been in my notes. If we had a guest on that week, there's a lot in my notes that I don't say. So it may just, it may not have made it to the microphone. Did your notes include the fact that in South Africa, people call it a floofy slide? <laughs> Absolutely not. What? Yeah. A floofy slide? Yeah. In fact, when I clicked on floofy slide, all it did was reload the page I was reading because Wikipedia is like, zipline redirects from floofy slide. Oh my gosh. I'm trying to think of how they would have come up with that name. Well, it's What's South Africa. What's the connection there? It's like the British came in, as they do, <laughs> and yeah. saw the people using this contraption and in their stereotypical British way, dubbed it the floofy slide. That does seem like the kind of term that a out-of-touch British guy would invent for people to use. Perhaps. And it's ridiculous enough to stick. The problem with that theory, though, is that it was also the British who came into Australia and called it something different. So I guess it just depends on which ship went where. Yeah, I can't help you on that one. <laughs> Maybe a particularly eccentric British man landed in South Africa, Africa and named the Floofy Slide. I just slide it could also be a word that was invented by the people that were already in that region and they were making fun of british people ha! okay i like that idea i don't know yeah maybe it's the semi-english translation of what the people already there were calling it like the anglicized pronunciation yeah Whatever you want to call it, Slake glides down over Max. This is the second time someone in this movie has done this, by the way. Glide down over a group of people and he lands against a rock and he hits the ground, turns around, looks at Max, and he starts moving very slowly and deliberately. First thing he does is he takes that staff on his back, which I'm assuming he also doubles as a spear. Anyway, it's probably the totem of the lead hunter he flicks it off of his shoulder just leaves it on the ground and he walks slowly towards max with his hands up towards max just holding them out so he sees that his hands are empty and slake is able to quiet the other members by his presence they respect him his position within the tribe and as slake moves towards max he's always in this what i'd call a readied position he seems ready to spring one way or the other based on the movements that Max is giving him. And you get the sense that Slake has a suspicion that this is supposed to be Walker. He hasn't had it fully explained to him. He's just kind of going on assumption at this point, but he doesn't want to fully commit to that idea just yet. He's being very cautious. He is, and he's being very strategic. Definitely the type of person and the type of behavior you would expect of the lead hunter. And in the book, they also point out specifically he is the leader of the tribe. The alpha male. Yes. What do they call him? The book labels him the tribe's chief hunter and nominal leader. Okay. Does it talk about how old he might be? Mm, not that's popping out at me. It might be in there somewhere, but it's not popping out at me. So Slate gets around in front of Max, and he has now positioned himself between Max and the other waiting ones. And finally seeing someone who somewhat resembles an adult, someone who isn't shouting at him, Max asks... Who are you? The children in the tribe start to repeat him, but Slake does this kind of sideways hand wave and it quiets them all down. And he has to do this twice over the course of this conversation that him and Max are starting. Something that happens in the book, which I feel like I'm bringing it up an awful lot. Well, there's more in the book than there is in this scene. There so really, really is. Sense. 
The first time Slake does that, Slake is the one that does it. The second time that Slake does it in the book, it's not Slake, it's Max, who already picked up on the hand motion that would quiet everybody down. So the second time that it needs to happen, it's Max that does it. Oh. And they follow him. Okay. They stop. That's kind of cool. In the book, Max is much more with it and strategic about his actions yeah much more the classic looking around and seeing what's going on trying to read the room he notes specifically how many kids there are and that they all have weapons of various kinds whether it be spears or simply rocks that even though they are children they could turn against him and they could kill him they have the ability <laughs> they so could easily he, outnumber him yeah yes so he goes along as it becomes more clear to him that this is mistaken identity he doesn't want to tip them off and he goes along with it yeah but at the same time he's trying to get more information out of slake the conversation goes on much longer in the book between him and Slake. Mm. So the first question he asked, who are you? And Slake says, we's the waiting ones. And he says, waiting for who? Slake says, waiting for you. And in the movie, Max follows that up with, who do you think I am? But in the storybook, they go in a bit of a different line of conversation. I'm interested to hear what they do in the book, though, how the conversation goes. Max is trying to find out what happened to the parents. Yeah. But he's having a hard time communicating the concept of parents. He's like, oh, who are your parents? And Slake doesn't understand who birthed you. And Slake doesn't really understand that either. During this, Slake does point out that Finn is Savannah's son. So that is explicitly stated. And Kusha, who is pregnant, also has another child who is a toddler. In the storybook... Max, after hearing the response, waiting for you, he asks, is this all of you? And Slake says, we count 52. Max understands this and he says, where are the parents? Slake doesn't understand what parents are. So Max rephrases it and says, who gave birth to you? And Slake says, we birthed ourselves. He points to a small child. He be Kush's first. And Max says, yeah, but who birthed you? And so Slake seems surprised by that because in Slake's mind, Captain Walker would know exactly who Slake's mother is because they would be contemporaries. And so Slake says her name was Joanna. She was a firekeeper. And so Max, being outnumbered 52 to 1, says, where is she now? And so Slake talks about how her time come and she took the leaving. And so Max interprets that as her dying. But no, the leaving is a thing where they just kind of go out and look for help. It's going to be further explained during the wall section. They're going to talk about the great leaving. When Max brings up the idea of death, this idea, the word death kind of seems to disturb the kids a little bit. Mm. They kind of get a little tiny bit hung up on that idea. And they're kind of chattering amongst themselves about death. So it really makes me curious about how they view it. What's their experience? How many of them have died? Especially once all the adults were gone and it's just a gaggle of kids left behind. 52. Holy cow, that's a lot of kids. Yeah. Savannah tries to pipe in and explain a little bit, talking about the leaving, that Joanna was part of a group of eight that wandered out into the desert and the kids stood by and watched them leave until they couldn't see him anymore. And then she goes on to say, we sang him a chant for luck and 
she's confused saying, wait, didn't they find you? They're assuming that the group of eight that went out found Max, and that's why Max was on his way back to the crack in the earth. And Max in the book is nervous about this line of question that it's going to give him away. Mm -hmm. So he starts fibbing a little bit that he wasn't sure if he had met them because he had met so many people. And yeah, he does his best to kind of feel out how he can sound like he knows what he's talking about, but still get information out of them. And it's at this point in the storybook that he asks, who do you think I am? Now, how do the waiting ones react in the book? In the novel, Max never comes straight out and says, who do you think I am? Really? Slake says, what are you talking about? Didn't they find you? Talking about the last group of adults. Max says awkwardly, I don't know. You meet a lot of people out there. And this it goes on to say, the tribe looked at one another again, more puzzled now than distressed. Their voices rose and mingled. What's his program? How come he didn't know? What happened to his memberment? It were history back. Don't he know his own tell? So basically, they're like, wait a second. Why doesn't he know what's going on? Does he not remember his own story? Does he not know who he is? Yeah, I would say that response is much more in line with what we see here in the movie. I can't really make out what the kids are saying to each other, but they're definitely leaning in and asking each other questions, talking one to another. And that's definitely the line of questioning that you would think they'd be talking along mm -hmm. in the storybook max does ask who do you think i am and then the, that causes the tribe to more or less laugh and then ask each other questions they see it as a kind of awkward thing and so they do the ha 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 hey, what's going on here yeah in amongst themselves and it's and this shot of a group of confused children that we end today's minute with so we're going to leave these group of confused kids where they are. We are going to come back on Friday. But before we leave, I think it's important to note that here at the tail end of minute 53, we are pretty much halfway through this movie. Thunderdome is 107 minutes long, which means that halfway through the movie would be halfway through minute 53. So we'll say tomorrow is the official halfway point before we come back for 54 on Friday. Wow, that happened so fast. I know, right? But then again, Thunderdome seems so long ago. It does seem like we've been out wandering in the desert for a long <laughs> time now, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Barter Town is a distant memory. It is. So on Friday, when we come back, we're going to have Mr. Skyfish and Slake, assuming that Max is testing them. So they sit him down for a little something they call the tell. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Mad Max Franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 53 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody say